You are listening to Slaves to the Algo with Suresh Shankar, a show about AI, big data, disruptive technology, and strategies for your business to stay ahead in the age of relevance. Brought to you by Crayon Data. Hello, viewers and listeners. I'm Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data. Welcome back to Slaves to the Algo. Today, I'm delighted to have Sandeep Reddy. Sandeep is an academic, a medical informatician, and founder of Medi AI. He's actually quite a rare breed. He started to be a doctor, a management graduate, and a specialist in AI. And the first time I've seen somebody combine these three specialities into one. Sandeep's worked at several educational institutions and medical organizations before he decided to also become an entrepreneur and founded Medi AI in 2018, based in Melbourne, Australia. Medi AI draws upon AI technology and combines it with their specialist knowledge in healthcare to devise strategies and applications for hospitals, healthcare services, and clinicians. And Sandeep, in the middle of all of this, um, someone manages to find time to be a, a professor, associate professor at the Deakin University School of Medicine, and is a member of the roster of digital health experts of the World Health Organization. One thing I'm certain about is that all doctors tell me to get some sleep, and Sandeep is not getting any with so many different hats that he's wearing. Welcome to the show, Sandeep. Thanks, Suresh. Thanks for having me. Sandeep, um, before I start, first, very curious about the combination. You started to be a doctor, then you went and started business school, which several people do, and then you started AI. Uh, what's that? What's the backstory here? Yeah, good question. Uh, obviously, as a doctor, you have this interaction with patients one-to-one. -one. Then you start to realize that there are issues that you can't necessarily deal with or address from that one-to-one -one interaction. You start to think of the population level. So that led me onto a path to public health. And I undertook studies in public health, but also did training with World Health Organization. When I was with the World Health Organization, I had this exposure to data analytics and that got me interested in data uh, analysis and how to present insights from medical data. So that led me on to a PhD in uh, hospital data analytics. And as you very well know from your past interaction with um, other experts on this uh, podcast, but also through your company, machine learning, artificial intelligence is all about data. So kind of that transitioned into interest into machine learning and then artificial intelligence and so forth. Great. And um, so it wasn't exactly a planned journey. So you went from being a doctor, doing public health, then you get exposed to data, then you say, I also got to do this. And now you found a way to bring all of that together into a, into, you know, a synthesized whole. Yes, um, it was quite serendipitous, you may say, but I also see the ongoing medical evolution, the medical training and the way clinical practice evolves. It's really hinging on data and data insights. So I think at some point of time, even if I was practicing as a medical doctor, the paths would have kind of coincided anyway. That's absolutely true. And we'll get to that. But I like to uh, literally start the podcast always with a more personal question to my guests, right? On data and AI. I mean, um, we all get affected by, and one of the reasons why I set up the podcast is that we all get affected by data and AI in many ways. And sometimes we know about it and sometimes we don't even know what's going on in the background. And this is true in our personal and our professional lives. Could you give me a couple of examples of your, of, you know, some of the favorite algorithms in your life that have impacted your daily life or your professional life, you know, either 
people may know about it or not? I mean, any, any examples at all? Yeah, what I'm about to say is probably applying to a large uh, segment of your audience. It's a very interesting question because it really highlights how much AI has permeated our daily lives. We wake up asking our smart speaker the weather and schedule for the day, and perhaps even the news. And then later on at work, you use search engines driven by cutting edge algorithms to find important information. And during the breaks during your work, you may be browsing social media, and then you get recommendations from the social media about people you need to connect with or channels you may want to subscribe with. It's all driven by recommendation engines. Then after work, you want to kick back and relax. You turn on the TV and then you get recommended systems outlining the programs you need to watch, movies you need to watch. And then finally, towards the end of the day, your smart assistant says it's time to bed. So it's kind of like a full circle. You start off your day with AI and it ends with AI. And many times we don't even know that this AI is driving all these applications. So it's really become part of our daily lives. That's very interesting, That's isn't it? That's that's a fascinating way to put it, and you know I think you frighten half the world, and you like you know excite half the world when you say that. But which of these moments do you really find in your life as something that wow, you know that's something that really useful to me, or something that really like you know excites me? You know which of all these algorithms that you encounter as a specialist? So there is those algorithms that are in clinical practice and in medicine, but I want to talk about the this simple algorithms. With, while they may be very simple, they're very profound. For example, uh, the search engines we use, we may think it's part of our daily lives and we use it so routinely, it's not really very impactful, but it does make a huge amount of difference whether we are trying to search for a restaurant, search for a hospital, or search for a particular answer to a particular question. This really the way the search engines have evolved to become so fine-tuned to our personal profiles, being able to narrow down the results to the precise kind of answers is really, really impactful. And I found that really fascinating. And obviously there's a lot of complexity behind those search engines, which is not obvious to lay users, but it's that kind of things that are part of daily lives, but still make a huge impact in so, terms of what we can do. Let me ask you something about healthcare and search engines that I think all of us relate to. The first thing that happens nowadays when you all fall sick for anything is you go and Google something, right? And you say what it is. And I met a doctor when, when I went, went and told him something about, uh, oh, but you know, this is what I heard. He said, you know, why did you read it? And I said, on the internet. And he says, don't confuse your ability to Google with my years of medical training. So what is your take on all the search engines and what they're giving us when we go and search for all these symptoms versus obviously a trained doctor like you? And when does this actually, the expertise that you have, actually start making its way to a democratized version, if you will, to the public? It's a very good question. So definitely, I agree with your doctor. We can't rely on Dr. Google. It's probably better to rely on the human clinicians. But what is happening over time is, especially in the US, you have this major clinics actually having their own websites outlining the information, preliminary information that patients want to know. For example, they've been diagnosed with a particular condition and they may not have the means or the time to access the doctor immediately. And in the interim, they want to get some more information. So they want to go to a credible and authoritative website. So you have major hospitals in the US actually having their own websites detailing information, obviously, there is a requirement for you to kind of verify that and have that 
authenticated by a human clinician, but at least you get that level of information available to you. But it's always pertinent and important to derive information from authoritative sources. Nowadays, in the context of pandemic, there's a lot of misinformation floating around and a lot of untruths floating around. So it's really, really important to ensure that whatever information you receive comes from a very authoritative source. Sure, and um, I think you're right uh, because there are so many sources on the web and I typically tend to go to the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic sites because yes. you know you associate them with slightly more better quality information. But um, let me actually come down, drill down a little bit deeper into some of the problems you've been working on, Sandeep, because yeah. you know I've seen the work that you've done, we've talked before, and one of the roles uh, of AI is that, you know, it's not after I fall sick, but in improving early detection yes. and making a more accurate prediction about, um, let's say something that affects many people in the world, blood pressure, right? And you've done some work about, you know, predicting what kind of things this is. Could you tell us more about these kind of predictions and early detection in your work and how AI is helping solve this problem? Let me set the context in terms of how AI is applied in healthcare. So AI is applied across all medical disciplines. I don't think there's any medical discipline that's untouched by artificial intelligence. But if you want to really categorize the way AI is applied in healthcare, there are three main categories. There is the diagnosis, there's the prognosis, and there's the treatment. So what is diagnosis? Diagnosis is identifying medical conditions. In this particular area, you start to see a lot of uh, AI applications, especially in the area of medical imaging interpretations, analyzing CT images, analyzing X-ray images, and trying to identify the um, areas of concern, the lesions and so forth. So there's a lot of maturity in that area. Then when we talk about prognosis, which is really determining the outcome of a particular condition, and when you have patients within the ICU or patients within the hospital and the doctors wanting to know how the uh, treatment approaches will work on this particular patient, then again, AI applications play a role. Uh, you have a lot of applications being used in the ICU area and the emergency department area to uh, monitor patients to see if this particular patient requires early intervention because they may go into complications. Then when you talk about the treatment end of things, you have got clinical decision support systems, which not only help with the diagnosis, but they also help in formulating personalized treatments. Nowadays, you get huge amount of clinical guidelines. I don't think there's any doctor, a human doctor that can say that they know everything about their particular disciplines, because that's the amount of information that is coming in through. Then you have genomic data, those kind of per patient data that's coming in through. So what AI can do is put all this information together together and formulate the best treatment possible. So in that area, clinical decision support systems, my company, Media, has done some work in association with a UK-based university. We developed a clinical decision support system so that- Before we go in there, I just going to kind of quickly ask you. So that's a lovely thing. So you're saying there's diagnosis, there's prognosis, and there's treatment. And if I'm right, you're saying diagnosis, especially in terms of imaging and interpretation of test results, is the part where where the AI systems or the machines are doing very well. And would it therefore right to be say that in prognosis, it's a little bit less developed and in treatment a little bit less developed? Is that, is that my takeaway from this? Uh, not necessarily. Um, the way I put it is that uh, why I emphasize medical imaging um, analysis applications is because computer vision, convolutional neural networks have been able to really 
achieve that kind of uh, um, level of accuracy comparable to radiologists, if not exceeding radiologists. Um, for example, um, identifying cancer lesions in um, CT scans, um, identifying tuberculosis in x-rays, x-ray images, so forth. Um, not just in those kind of images, but also in histopathological images and so forth. So you have that various studies showing the prowess and the performance of uh, medical imaging interpretation um, uh, applications, or in other words, computer-aided diagnosis. In fact, World Health Organization has recently said that um, it actually recommends uh, uh, people to use uh, computer-aided diagnosis in terms of identifying tuberculosis in chest x-rays. So it's come to that point where the uh, leading health organization in the world has said, yes, we may want to consider uh, computer-aided diagnosis, specifically AI applications in identifying diagnosing tuberculosis. So that's why I kind of emphasize that. It doesn't mean that there aren't any applications in prognosis or in treatment that are not uh, worthy of a consideration. It's just that there's a lot more happening in the diagnostic space, and there's going to be more, much more happening in the other spaces in the coming years. Well, again, Sandeep, just to get in and I think make it uh, relevant to the lay audience, right? Uh, in a way, what you're saying is true of all AI systems and other verticals, right? I mean, diagnosis is about looking at something that's hatched has happened and interpreting it and their machines tend to avoid human biases because they're able to look at a lot more information, make comparisons and do that. A treatment on the other hand involves making a holistic assessment of something and, and actually interpreting that. And there the human mind has something to add because we're able to see certain things that machines can't necessarily join that. So in a way, it seems to me that what you're describing is or how AI is evolving in medicine is exactly the way it's evolved in in let's say credit scoring in, in financial hmm. services or, yes. or anything else that you're doing. But, you know, I interrupt, you were telling me about, you know, the work that you'd been done on MediAI about making accurate predictions in areas like blood pressure. No, thank you for that analogy. Indeed, uh, AI uh, journey in medicine kind of reflects what's occurring in other areas. But traditionally medicine has been a bit more slower in adopting AI because we are dealing with human lives and obviously human clinicians and other health bodies have to be careful in adopting technology which hasn't been tested. So there will be a slower adoption of AI in healthcare as opposed to other sectors. But coming to that particular uh, area where uh, MediAI uh, has developed a clinical decision support system is we worked with a UK-based uh, um, university and a cardiologist to develop a clinical decision support system to identify those patients who require referral to ambulatory monitoring of blood pressure. For those of your audience who do not come from a health background, this is the process when you want to validate whether somebody has a true hypertension as opposed to white coat hypertension. Sometimes you get patients coming to the clinic and being front of the doctor and then you have elevated blood pressure, but they do not have an underlying hypertension. In order to rule it out, that one or masked hypertension, you need to go through this process called ambulatory monitoring of blood pressure where you're attached to a monitor and you take it home and it goes beep beep overnight. It's very inconvenient, but it does give you that accurate picture whether you have hypertension or not. So as a doctor, you want to make sure that the patients you refer to that particular process are those ones that really need that particular intervention or procedure. So we developed an ensemble model using various algorithms to identify those patients who, to a reasonable degree of accuracy, whether they require that referral. 
And that was one of the things that we worked on clinical decisions of both systems. There are other things that we have worked on, but I'm sure in the course of our conversation, I'm able to bring that up. Sure, and I think that's, uh, that, that's very interesting because again, when you go into the deconstruction of an AI in any industry, you're trying to distinguish cause and effect. And what you're telling me out here is that the actual presence of the doctor itself can sometimes influence how the patient is and you're trying to separate that out. Um, and I think, what are the areas do you think uh, as you're doing this work in media AI, right? I mean, one is obviously uh, predictive in the uh, predictive analytics in the early stages of a disease. But uh, what about, you know, the whole area of preventive care? There's a whole bunch of healthcare applications that are encouraging people. I don't know which of these is pseudoscience and which one of these backed by data and AI. You know, exercise more, eat healthier, develop better habits. Um, is AI going to play a big role in preventive healthcare as we were talking about, you know, in early detection and preventive healthcare? Is it more likely to kind of come in, you know, after something has been diagnosed? So let's start with the preventive healthcare. Yes. As a public health medicine specialist, I always like to uh, talk about discussion about preventative health care. So when you look at the definition of health by the World Health Organization, it's not only talking about the absence of disease, talking about complete well-being. Current healthcare models are really uh, geared towards downstream models, reactive models. What it means is that it not only you treat the patient quite late, but also it adds to the cost of delivering healthcare services. What we need is a upstream model, early intervention model, which is really about the preventative model, right? And I think AI has definitely a role. Why so? When you're talking about uh, chronic diseases, which is really the one which causes the hugest burden or the highest burden on healthcare services, and it's the major contributor for healthcare expenditure, most of these chronic diseases can be prevented by early intervention, by adoption of healthy lifestyles, including uh, diet and exercise. And what happens most of the time is people do not have this um, healthy lifestyle either because they do not have the information or do not have access to the necessary counseling and coaching. I think AI has come a long way in that sense that it can offer applications that can en enable this virtual coaching, uh, personalized coaching to enable this changes in this lifestyle. In fact, our company uh, is focusing on this particular area, early intervention preventative models. We have introduced an app application called Helia, which is focused on type two diabetic patients. What it does is creates a personalized diet regimen, personalized exercise regimen through smart technology, but also integrates patient data, that data that's being collected to this process to the uh, carers, uh, whether it's the doctor or allied health providers. Why is that important? Because what happens is currently the way care, uh, clinical care or medical care is delivered is very episodic. You go to a doctor, so, you spend the 15, 20 minutes with the doctor, and then you're out and you lose that connection between the doctor or the healthcare provider. What we should be looking is this continuous care model. And I think that approach of integrating patient data from home and through other activities that are occurring at home back to the clinic or back to the healthcare provider enables that not only the continuous care, but in case there was something that is alarming or that something that was out of out, untoward happening, the healthcare provider can intervene. Obviously, this has to happen with the patient's permission, but it does enable that continuous care model, early intervention, uh, wellness, be well-being model. And, and, and that's such a fantastic thing because, you know, 
I wear an Apple watch and I think about when the pandemic hit, I started tracking everything that I'm doing. And you're absolutely right. Just the availability of the information gives you a good insight as an individual to change your habit. But, uh, you know, again, I have an interesting question, which is very relevant for you, because I think, like I said, you combine your doctor's hat with a business hat, with a AI hat. We've heard so much about how technology is going to change medical healthcare and like, you know, make it better, right? Uh, I'm even staying out of things like gene editing and CRISPR and all of that. Yes. But we've heard about IBM Watson. We've heard about the Apple Watch and how it's going to... There's so much talk about data and AI and healthcare. How much of this is real from a individual's perspective today? I mean, what things do you think you will solve? Um, let's say in the next year or two, what, do you, what, what problems do you think you'll solve either of day-to-day -day lives or big problems? Because otherwise it seems like a false dawn all the time. Sure. Um, you're kind of, uh, it's a multi-layered question. So let me kind of uh, unpack it a little bit. First, let's look at the context of healthcare. What we have current healthcare is not sustainable in terms of being able to continue to deliver this level of healthcare services or even upscale, upscale or scale up the health services. Why so? Firstly, let's look at the amount of time it takes to train doctors or nurses or healthcare professionals. It's an enormous amount of time. And after, even after they train, they require certain years of experience to become competent in that area. And then you have the demand for healthcare services, which outpaces the supply end of things. So that kind of creates a mismatch between the demand and supply, right? And in addition to that, you also have increasing expenditure of um, running healthcare services or delivering healthcare services. And last part of it is to do with recurrent healthcare uh, expenditure, which is really about salaries for healthcare professionals. Further to that, then you have those uh, different healthcare systems with different healthcare uh, uh, insurance models, different healthcare financing mechanisms. And they do not necessarily are oriented towards the patient. They may be oriented towards uh, the either to the health services or they may be favoring the government and so forth. And further to that, you also have people living in regional and rural areas not getting the same level of uh, care as somebody in an urban setting would get. With all these things, uh, people have been trying to work out solutions, but they're quickly running out of solutions. There isn't really a, a kind of comprehensive solution package that can address all these issues. I think AI, because of its uh, underlying sort of uh, potential, but also because of its multi-pronged approach where it can apply, uh, where it can be applied in different situations can be one of the really uh, good solutions to address this. And from that perspective, I definitely think AI has substance. It's much more than hype, but what has happened is because of um, the initial kind of impressions of what AI can do or because of companies trying to sell AI, the capabilities of AI have been hyped up to an extent that people are talking about it replacing human clinicians. What we are currently seeing nowadays is nothing but narrow AI, which means that it can service one particular area or one particular uh, domain, but not necessarily deal with multi, multi areas. It's not multi-purpose in other sense. We mm -hmm. do not see general AI. As a human clinician, whether uh, it's a general practitioner or whether it's a specialist, 
you do not necessarily focus on one particular aspect. You do many things as part of your daily routine. I don't think there's any AI in the world which can do that. So when we are talking about AI replacing human clinicians, we are really talking about science fiction. That is probably many, many years away. Instead of but that- let's just drill if, down into that point. Which areas do you think that AI can most immediately create that, you know, the narrow AI? Can you give us a couple of examples of where you think narrow AI is the most likely to affect normal people, I mean, you know, and help them? Yeah, in certain areas, like as I mentioned earlier, we talked about the uh, potential of uh, convolutional neural networks, what they can do in trying to identify uh, abnormalities in medical images. Uh, we have seen several studies, uh, not just uh, retrospective in-house in silico studies, but also prospective uh, randomized control trials. We also seen in the US, um, the US administration reimbursing uh, medical imaging analysis applications. So from that area, I think there is a great deal of maturity that has been achieved with computer-aided diagnosis and in other words, AI-enabled medical imaging interpretation. So those aspects are definitely, and they're also, we have seen that AI applications being integrated into CT machines by certain companies that gives real-time AI interpretation. So I would say that is a really good example to show how AI can make a change and make an impact in healthcare. But there's also AI being used in uh, non-healthcare uh, areas, uh, sorry, non-clinical areas, but in healthcare administration, for example, for reimbursement, for booking of patients, scheduling of patients. These are low-risk areas in that sense, they don't directly deal with patient lives or patient care, but at the same moment, give you that necessary impact um, and necessary benefits in healthcare. Yeah. And I'm going to go to the second part of what you said, which is that the realm of like, you know, machines doing everything is science fiction. Um, and I think it's also a human thing, right? I mean, I would feel very uncomfortable being taken care of by a robot as opposed to a human doctor. Uh, and, but there have been, it seems, positive responses to virtual health assistants. Uh, do you think that there are advantages to these? Do you think they'll grow in popularity? Uh, what's your take on this whole idea of actually having something like that in, in people's lives? Again, it goes back to that uh, point I made earlier. Current healthcare models are really episodic in nature. Um, they're not necessarily affordable. And sometimes you can't access that healthcare immediately. You actually have to uh, make a physical visit to a healthcare, uh, uh, healthcare clinic. So what if you are able to bring that healthcare to you, your home, uh, where you are, in a much more eff effective and efficient manner. And that's where virtual health assistants play a role. And in fact, um, in the UK, um, the UK government has already engaged uh, virtual health assistants to do uh, triaging of patients. What this means is that at home, you can enter your symptoms and there's a symptom checker or a virtual health assistant. It gives you differential diagnosis. If there was something serious, then it would be able to actually make a referral to the nearest uh, healthcare practice. So this uh, works very well in terms of avoiding, uh, making sure that patients do not require to travel to the hospital, mm -hmm. uh, do not necessarily have to do that. Uh, they can be treated at home or receive uh, necessary intervention, early intervention if necessary. So the other thing is that virtual health assistance is that you can also customize it and personalize it according to the particular context. So you don't have one uh, kind of approach for all uh, different uh, 
um, situations. But the drawback is that still because there is a lot of work to be done in that area from a technological perspective, sometimes you may have misleading diagnosis, misleading uh, um, conditions being identified, and that can create alarm among patients. The other issue that may emerge is that older people, older segments of the population who are not necessarily digitally savvy may not want to use this. And mm -hmm. if you were to use and uh, introduce and virtual health assistance and replacing some aspects of your health services, then you're ignoring a large segment of the population. You know, Sandeep, it's fascinating because, you know, you talked about in the beginning about how from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, AI is solving a whole lot of problems for people. And now what you're telling me with this whole virtual assistant and, and the whole idea that it's all episodic today is that eventually, but not just yet, you're going to have literally a system like that, which can actually track a lot of things that you're doing. And by so doing, it can actually create probably a causal chain between all your daily actions and then what's happening to your disease. And that then helps. You still need the human first doctor, but the human doctor is then able to actually look at a fuller chain of data to be able to make it rather than just examining only what, what he's seeing in front of what he or she is seeing in front of them at that point of time. Would that be would that be the future of how medicine is going to go? Yeah, it's a very good point that you raised there. Uh, the American Medical Association uses a term called augmented intelligence. I think that mm -hmm. artificial intelligence kind of creates a bit of uh, consternation, anxiety amongst people. I like the term augmented intelligence. It's non-scary, non-threatening. It, what it means is that it's enhancing patient care, enhancing clinical care. And it also means that there is that level of collaboration between human clinicians and the AI aspects. And I think that's really the attitude and the kind of approach we should adopt and also portray in terms of how AI can be integrated into clinical care. I always believe there has to be a human oversight, no matter how powerful the AI is, even if we move from narrow AI to general purpose AI or uh, strong AI, we still need that human oversight. The, one is not just because uh, we need that uh, uh, assurance from uh, um, assurance for patients that there is a human oversight, but it's also important that human clinicians, that in terms of empathy, in terms of care, they are involved and they are consulted in that whole package. We don't want to kind of ring fence the AI care from the human care. So it's really important to integrate that. I think that's the way to approach things uh, going forward. And it's interesting because, you know, as an industry and as you're trained to do, empathy for the human being is the literally the start of healthcare. I mean, your Hippocratic Oath says as much, right? Uh, but I've also seen what happens in other industries when over a period of time, more and more data and more is, is fed into systems and the systems start to take over the decision. And eventually you land up with something that's inexplicable. And even the person who's making the decision, for example, a decision to give a credit card in the US, the FICO score pretty, pretty, pretty much runs your life, right? If you have a poor FICO score, you can't get credit to anything. And there is no one who can tell you how the FICO score works and what it does to your life. So it's a little bit scary as well. Uh, don't you think that when it comes to our own lives and bodies that maybe not now, but in 10 years time, you know, something may be denied to you or told you to do something. Do you think that we'll reach that dystopian future? Should people trust it? Or should we just say, no, 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 I'd rather a doctor go through 10 years and I'll listen to the human being? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, we, 
if you look at medicine, some of the way, uh, some of the drugs, how they work, it's not really known. And we kind of, uh, you know, take it for granted and we use those medications. And sometimes uh, some of the procedures or the, some of the diagnosis we make, we can't really explain that very well. I'm not talking about involvement of technology, just the human processes. Mm -hmm. But in terms of AI, because it's an altogether different technology, it's got its own special abilities, and you want to kind of bring it into clinical care, there's always going to be some mistrust happening. In order to engender trust, we have to make sure that whatever the decision-making is done by AI is very transparent. And we know that in specific AI models like deep learning models, because of the architecture of those deep learning models with those hidden layers, the decision-making is very, very opaque. And then you have this uh, ability of this um, deep learning models to exceed that of uh, explainable machine learning models. Um, so some of the machine learning models are explainable. For example, you're talking about logistic regression, decision trees, you can kind of uh, uh, chart the steps and the decision-making process. But then you talk about support vector machines and deep learning models. It's really, really hard to identify how the decision was arrived at. And if you think of a scenario where you have an AI application making a uh, decision or a treatment, uh, providing a recommendation about a treatment, which is very different from what a normal clinician would provide, um, it may be still right, but still then you have that resistance among the human clinicians or among the patients to accept that. So how do we overcome that? So there is a field of science within um, a field within AI called explainable AI. And there's a lot of research happening and study happening in this area. And let me kind of talk through what explainable AI is. Explainable AI is not so much outlining the architecture of that particular model, but talking about the functional process of that particular model or interpreting how the decision was arrived. In other words, explaining the causal sequence, how the uh, results were arrived at. So that's really important in medicine because transparency is key in clinical care. And without that transparency, I don't think you will be able to adopt AI especially complex AI models in clinical care, but also to create that trust, not just for doctors, but also for patients to rely on that AI advice. So with- no, I think it's AI fascinating, Sandeep, uh, because you say that, I'm sorry to kind of cut there, but I think uh, there's a fantastic um, study done in human psychology by a guy called Robert Cialdini. And he talks about that the moment you add the word because and explain why something is uh, being told to somebody, the adoption of that whole recommendation, the adoption of whatever you're telling them, the advice actually goes up. And in some ways, what you're saying is like, if the AI can come in and tell me, okay, you're being told to do ABC because of something, that it makes it easier for a patient to do that. And I, again, I'm linking it back to something you said about augmented intelligence and makes so much sense, right? If the doctor is able to tell you, hey, I'm telling you to do this, but because ABCDE yeah. and the machine's providing that, that would be a fantastic outcome, wouldn't it? I mean, if every patient-doctor interaction went like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, if we talk, uh, talk about natural language processing, uh, nowadays we use natural language processing in various areas, but in terms of the context of medicine, there is that ability for natural language processing to do real-time transcription of the conversations between patients and doctors. But not only that, but also be able to record that in documents. What it means, it gives more time for the doctor to spend 
uh, with the patient. Um, then there's still that ability for human oversight. Once the, uh, the document is chartered, we have the pay, uh, doctor being able to overview that and peruse that and kind of sign off on that. In fact, uh, Media has created a prototype which does that because unlike uh, your regular transcription software, natural language processing has that ability to comprehend um, medical terms. Um, there are a lot of medical terminologies now. You not only have the uh, general medical terms, but then you have subspecialist medical terms. So natural language processing is very well equipped to kind of capture those kind of terms, but also be able to distinguish between patient conversation and the doctor conversation and do it all in real time. So we created a prototype around that area. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that natural language processing can do is biomedical data mining. It's able, because there's a huge amount of uh, research literature coming in through. No uh, human being can actually go through all of it and be able to digest it. So natural language processing can actually summarize the information and give you the relevant information straight away. I'm not talking about hundreds of articles. I'm talking about 10, 20,000, 30,000 articles. In fact, a company has been involved in developing such application. So there's various ways natural language processing Is there any can... particular area where you've looked at in research and uh, you know, how, what, what, what kind of insights did you get from that? Yeah, we were involved in a biomedical uh, natural language processing, which was able to trawl through uh, 60,000 uh, COVID-related articles to be able to mm -hmm. identify uh, key insights. For example, we know that with COVID-19 patients or with the uh, uh, in, in, the, in the clinical context or even at home, uh, a lot of patients uh, lose ability to smell, lose ability to taste, but we also want to know what is leading to that. And there's a lot of research going in that area. So, so if somebody want to do a, just a general search, it would take uh, you know weeks and even um, months even to get the relevant literature, but we create a search engine which is able to go through all this database, all this literature and be able to pull out the relevant articles, but also summarize that information form of uh, abstracts. So, and is this for the um, doctor or for the patient? Uh yeah, it's this go, get towards uh, clinical researchers because it's looking through uh, uh, peer-reviewed uh, publications, but potentially if there was uh, people in uh, general public who are interested in identifying key insights from this literature that could be done, uh, that could be accessible too. And we have made it uh, publicly accessible. It's not hidden by paywalls or anything. So it was done in the service of humanity. So it seems... Um... Sandeep, as I'm talking to you, and again, I'm a, I know a bit about data and analytics and AI, but not about healthcare. But it seems that uh, as I'm listening to you, that the healthcare system is not suffering from a lack of data. In fact, especially in things like research and the training and all of that. I mean, this is you know, you, people have been studying this for a long time. What really the biggest power of AI seems to be almost is that can it take all the data, put it into a system and actually start to distill that intelligence and make it available either to the, you know, the, the radiologist or the clinical researcher or the doctor. It seems that that's where the biggest bang for the buck is going to be. Would I be right in that? You're right on Mark, because one of the things that AI um, in terms of its uh, software and in terms of its architecture, it separates itself from traditional software is that it's really got that ability to recognize patterns, correlations between terms, correlation between data points and so forth. 
In the past, uh, traditional software, because of the huge amount of uh, data and huge the complexity of data, they were not equipped to kind of pull out those insights. And it would take a huge amount of time to even develop those kind of software because you had to envisage every scenario. But with machine learning, because of its ability and its prowess, it can kind of predict, look through between different terms, try to find the relationship between those two things, entities, and then be able to recognize those patterns and predict what is going to happen. So this is the potential of uh, machine learning. And if you kind of extrapolate and apply it to the medical data, patient data, genomic data, radiomic data, you can start to see the potential of AI being able to get, get those data insights, but also guide clinicians, guide um, healthcare services in making the appropriate decisions. But where the issue is that large amount of data that is, gets accumulated in health services is unstructured data. We know that the largest amount of time that is taken to create AI models is not so much in the uh, creating the architecture of the model, but is cleaning up the data, structuring the data so that the AI model can be trained with the data. We also know that if we feed in the incorrect data, we get incorrect results, garbage in, garbage out. So I think we have to be mindful that uh, while there's huge amount of data, not all of the data is readily accessible and when it's accessible, it may not be structured enough for us to train AI models. But if we keep aside that, yes, definitely machine learning because of the way uh, it is and the way um, the architecture, the way the mathematical function, underpinning mathematical function is much more capable than your traditional software to be able to garner that insights from data. Um, Sandeep, it's been fascinating. I'm sure we can talk in such a big area. I mean, I wanted to talk to you about how genes are evolving, you know, all that stuff. And I think that's probably the subject of another podcast. I do have a couple of final questions with you. You're a public healthcare professional as well. And um, one of the things that we've seen about AI in general and other industries as well, uh, actually, I would say two big things. One is the area of bias that because data tends to be very much about like, you know, certain kinds of people, certain kinds of diseases, you tend to have systems that kind of have bias. The second one, which you pointed out earlier is that AI tends to be, or data tends to be available more for people who are, you know, higher up the socioeconomic strata who are living in urban areas. And like, you know, people who are outside, you know, are not able to access these. Do you have any thoughts on how AI is going to kind of democratizes, you know, one remove bias to democratize, make it available to everybody. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, coverage about how AI can create biases. To be fair to AI, there's already biases in healthcare service delivery. So it's unreasonable to expect AI to kind of eliminate those biases. But on the hand, we do have a reasonable expectation if we integrate AI into our healthcare service or K models that it doesn't introduce biases. So we need to understand how these biases are created with AI. So this can happen because of largely because of the data itself, not because of the algorithms. And what we are talking about here is data that is non-representative of the target population or it's an incorrect data. What do I mean by non-representative data? Say for example, we are targeting a particular diverse population uh, which has a high incidence of hypertension. And we know that within that target population, a particular segment of our particular ethnic, ethnic population 
has a higher degree of hypertension. But then you train the data on the ignoring that particular segment of the population on the rest of the population, obviously it's not going to be able to recognize that particular segment of population will have hypertension. So that's the kind of example for non-representative mm -hmm. data. And then you have the uh, incorrect data, which is self-explainable. If you feed in garbage, you get garbage out. So because of these reasons, you may get biases. So in order to avoid those biases, we need a governance framework. Um, myself and my co-authors published a lengthy article in the Journal of American Medical Informatics um, um, one year ago. In, we, in that governance framework, we talk about strategies to avoid this kind of biases. One is we mm -hmm. recommend data governance panels, not just in health institutions, but even within uh, software vendors, they mm -hmm. ensure that the data that is utilized is representative of the population, it's correct. So that's one approach. The governance framework is not just about mitigating biases. We also talk about how to avoid any mishaps in healthcare because of introduction of AI. And if mishaps occur, adverse events occur, how do we mitigate that and prevent that? So it's a broader one, but important uh, uh, factor there is the data governance, which is something we need to take into consideration. That is fantastic to hear. And like I said, Sandeep, we are uh, near the top of the hour, really, and I think we could go on forever. And I probably will kind of follow up with a, with a, with a, with a, with a more detailed chat on some of these models and so on. Um, and I guess, the one thing I'm going to ask you on a more personal note, you've studied medicine, business management, and AI. Do you think that teaching people about data, teaching doctors about AI data, how to handle it is going to become part of the medical curriculum anytime soon? I'm already working in a medical school and I've worked in medical schools. We are already talking about how care models are changing and the impact of technology, not just AI, there's other technologies, internet of things, virtual reality, quantum uh, uh, computing, that's all emerging. I think definitely it'll have an impact on medical care. Uh, so there's no doubt about it, but how do we actually incorporate that into the rigid medical curriculum that we have that has been around for a long time is the question. Uh, so myself and a co-author have recently uh, finished uh, drafting a book chapter, which actually talks about how to integrate uh, AI education within the medical curriculum. But some universities have gone ahead and already started to introduce uh, AI into the medical curriculum. In fact, I learned that there is a university in the US which actually requires uh, medical students to have a mathematics background or engineering background to be uh, enrolled in the medical school because they teach uh, data science and uh, AI within the medical school curriculum. So there are universities and medical schools already uh, starting to incorporate uh, data science, health informatics, and AI into their curriculum. So we'll be starting to see more and more medical schools adopting that. That is that is such fantastic uh, to hear, uh, the coming together of various disciplines. Um, Sandeep, um, I think, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, to my viewers and listeners, Sandeep Reddy, academic medical informatician, founder and entrepreneur at Medi.ai, a doctor who has studied business and AI, a rare breed who is trying to change the face of healthcare through the use of data and AI. And thank you, Sandeep, for being on the show and really look forward to seeing Medi.ai actually transform healthcare through the use of data over the years. Thanks, Suresh, for having me.
To my viewers and listeners, Slaves to the Algo is available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. We release a new episode every Tuesday. If you enjoyed this week's episode, don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. You can follow Sandeep Reddy at Reddy.ai. In the uh, he is based in Melbourne. And to sign off, stay safe in the age of COVID. Stay relevant in the age of AI. See you all next week. Thank you. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Slaves to the Algo, please rate, share, and subscribe. Visit crayondata.com to find out more. See you next time.